You got me? Oh, there, ooh, loud. Okay, so we've been so thankful for, uh, for you guys um, and your hospitality to us this week, and uh, we are just looking forward to continuing to, to meet with you guys and get to know you guys. We've seen a lot of you, a lot of names, a lot of faces. I'm sorry if I don't remember your name. Sorry. Okay, um, so if you would please pull out whatever form of Bible you're using, be it a book or an app, and uh, turn with me to Philippians 1, uh, verses 3 through 11. As you're finding your way there, uh, I can't tell you uh, what a blessing it has been to study and work through this passage at this particular point in my life. With graduation a couple of Fridays ago and my best friend's wedding last weekend um, that has put an exclamation point on his walk back to the Lord, um, there's just been a theme of completion sort of popping up in my life. And this passage sort of kept coming up over and over in my mind, and I just sort of figured I should preach on it. So uh, it also works well to embody what I I hope our relationship will grow to be in the years ahead. Uh, While I don't know you all as well as Paul knew the Philippians, um, the relationship that they have uh, or had is evident in this particular passage. And the things that Paul prays for uh, his friends echo what I look forward to building and praying for with you all. So this is uh, God's word from Paul's epistle to the Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment in, in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with great joy for you love us. And you have spoken to us through your Son and through your Word. As we come now to this text, would you bless the words of my heart, uh, words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts that we might be built up through the preaching of your Word. And we pray for ourselves, Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Would you cause our love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To you be all praise and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, to help us structure this sermon, uh, I want us to think about a family road trip. Okay, uh, we've all been there, you've all been there. You cram all your stuff into the trunk, you load the kids into the van, right? And you set off for untold hours on the road to whatever vacation destination you're headed to. For me, when I think of family road trips, I think of uh, when my family went to Walt Disney World, right? Um, 
And I must have been something like eight or nine at the time. Uh, and being the massive extrovert that I am, I must have been an, like just a, a handful, right? Like a massive bundle of energy. And this was way back before Honda Odysseys with their you know, DVD players where you can watch movies or Dora the Explorer or SpongeBob on repeat for hours on end. And uh, instead, we had like this 1986 boxy, no tinted windows, so you couldn't actually sleep, no like bucket seats, it was a bench where you, so you couldn't lie down or anything like that. 1986 Dodge Caravan that has a V4, you probably couldn't get up over 60, right? And uh, I, looked at, uh, I, I looked at Google Maps, it's 900 miles, right, from Morgantown, West Virginia, where I'm from, to Walt Disney World. It's a 14-hour trip, um, and that's without stops and without traffic. Um, and remember, when you're traveling with kids, there's no such thing as no stops, and like no traffic is a complete myth, so let's just be honest, it was way more than that. Right? And I was probably along the way asking like, Mom, I'm hungry, Dad, can, are we there yet? Ugh. I'm just, I need to go to the bathroom, you know? Just every probably like hour or so, so it just had to have taken forever, right? And it must have felt for, like forever for eight-year-old me because 14 hours to an eight-year-old is literally forever. And it probably felt even longer for my parents, right? <laughs> just probably even longer for my parents. But what was interesting is that eight-year-old me never questioned whether or not we would actually make it. Um, it never really crossed my mind. And this unshakable confidence is the kind of confidence that Paul expresses in verse 6, where Paul expresses confidence that God will complete the work that he has started in the Philippian believers. But, you know, this, this passage is really famous for verse 6, and I don't really want to focus on that verse too, too much, because the verses that surround verse 6 help us understand uh, that Paul grounds his confidence in, in a love for them that comes from being united with them uh, through Christ. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at this passage in two broad sections, two broad sections. This prayer of Paul is sort of set up in a classic Pauline way. Um, verses 3 through 8 talk about who the uh, Philippians are to Paul, and verses 9 through 11 talk about what Paul wants God to do for them. It's, pretty sh it's a pretty straightforward indicative imperative format, uh, which is uh, who we are comes before and controls what we do. But because it's a prayer, instead of the Philippians being the ones commanded to do the things according to who they are, Paul is asking God, God to do uh, the things because of who the Philippians are. So it makes sense to use his structure to guide us as we um, explore this passage. And so we're going to talk about the relationship between the Philippians and Paul, and then we're going to talk about uh, what he hopes for them. So let's dive right into Paul's relationship to the Philippians. If we look at verses 3 through 5 uh, and 7 through 8, we really see that Paul loves these people. Um, his words drip with an affection for them. Uh, this stands in contrast to the way he speaks to believers in his epistles to the Galatians and Corinthians. There he has really sharp and harsh words for them because of the sin that they're engaging in. But for the Philippians, it almost seems entirely joyful and loving. And this isn't to say that Paul didn't love the Galatians or, or Corinthians. Um, the, 
the strength of his language is a testimony of his care for them. But for the Philippians, it doesn't seem like harsh words are necessary. One of the commentators that I was reading as I was studying this passage noted that for Paul, the Philippians just seemed easier to love and less painful to love. But they have their own problems. If we go a little further into the letter, we'd find that the church had problems with unity. Um, ambitious preachers were vying to be the next big thing in the church, you know, the next Tim Keller or the next John Piper to be anachronistic or, you know, the next Dr. Silvernail, of course. Um, and people were beginning to polarize into camps, right? People were beginning to polarize into camps. And self-centeredness and a lack of care for others plagued the church. Paul even goes so far as to call two of them out by name in Philippians 4.2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syncate to agree in the Lord. And can you imagine receiving a letter from Paul and being called out in that manner? right? And so knowing that Paul is going to address these issues of disunity, we begin to see these verses of, of affection in a little bit of a different light. We can imagine Paul sort of throwing his arms around each of these sort of separate groups, um, saying, I love you all. If we look in verses 3 and 4, four times he uses words of unity and totality. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. If you're anything like me, we tend to sort of blow by these sentiments, right? Um, my reaction to this is generally skepticism. Like, oh, he doesn't actually mean all. He's just trying to be nice, you know? Or uh, even if he does mean it, there's no way, like, there's no way that I could possibly do it. Like, I don't even like my, all the members of my family all the time. So this is, this is a little, like, far-fetched to me. In, uh, in Philippi, the church was composed primarily of Gentiles, people who had been brought up in a radically different way from Paul's strict pharisaical upbringing. And furthermore, if we dig deeper, there was a wide range of temperaments, personalities, and backgrounds too. So these people are so, so different from Paul, right? And yet he says, I love you all. From Acts, we know that there was at least a, a businesswoman that would sell dye um, from Asia, a hardened Roman jailer, and probably a slave girl that had been freed from a spirit. And yet this, this is scripture, and so we really do have to take Paul at his words that he loves them all and that he is thankful for all of them. But his affection is not just wide-ranging and inclusive. It's intensive and deep, too. As he gathers the Philippians to himself, he, Paul says that he holds them in his heart. Um, it's a deep bond that he shares with them. The intensity of the affection is highlighted in verse 8. Uh, the King James Version renders it this way. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And so the word affection in the ESV just doesn't quite cut it. It doesn't go deep enough. This affection is a gut-level, visceral kind of love. It's a love that hits you right in the stomach. So I was talking with one of the seniors um, at Wallace Presbyterian Church in College Park, which is the church that I serve at now, um, and she was going down to, uh, to Alabama with her family for her older brother's college graduation. And I said, I asked her if she was driving, and she said, no, heck no, we're not doing that. Um, we did that once, and it was such a bad idea, my mom totally cried the whole way back. And I was like, what? And apparently they had done this drive to drop her brother off uh, 
his freshman year, right? And it was the first, I mean, you can imagine, it was the first kid away from home, and her mom was just totally feeling it. And you can almost hear her say, you know, I just love you so much, and it's so hard for me to watch you go off to college, and I just, and, you know, just crying the whole way home, right? Just sobbing in the passenger seat the whole way home. And that's the kind of gut-wrenching love, the gut-wrenching visceral love that we're talking about. Right? It's a deep and intense love that just really hits you right deep in, inside of you. And it's a partnership. It's also a partnership and a fellowship that pays no attention to external circumstance. Um, Paul is most likely writing to the Philippians from Rome, where he's under house arrest. He would have been chained to a guard 24 7. Um, and the word imprisonment here in verse 7 literally means bonds or chains. And so he would have had no freedom of movement, no privacy. Just imagine being handcuffed to somebody all the time, right? No privacy, no freedom of movement. It would have, it would have for us who are very individualistic, it must have been like, it would have been just, it would have driven us crazy. And I think it's safe to say that this sort of period in Paul's life was not one of his most pleasant times, right? Um, but he also says that it's not just in his imprisonment, but also in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here he has in mind his preaching ministry, which was enormously fruitful and joyous. And so we see both bad times and good times, and yet he, through it all, he treasures the Philippians and he's joyful and thankful for them. And so we're talking about a love that encompasses everybody, is deep in his heart, and cares nothing about his circumstances. But that brings up sort of this question of why and how. It always comes up to, like, how, how can he do this? How can he love them in all their wide-ranging diversity with such a passion? That leads us to verse 5. It is because of their partnership in the gospel from the first time for the first day until now. For sure, the Philippians supported Paul's ministry. Their gifts helped him with his uh, various ministry and living expenses, and they certainly prayed for him faithfully. But it's not just that they materially supported him and, and supported him in prayer, uh, but that they are fellow participants in the gospel as well. The word translated here as uh, partnership is koinonia in the Greek, or fellowship. Paul has in mind not just their helping of him, but also the fact that they share in the gospel. They have been partners in the gospel from the first day, uh, since the first day they became believers, sharers in the same hope and grace that flows from the gospel, which is that Christ died for them um, on a cross and was raised from the dead for sinners like us. It's because of this sharing, this bond in the gospel, that Paul is thankful to God for the, for the Philippians. He makes this explicit at the end of verse 7. For you are all partakers of me with, uh, with me of grace. And Paul uses words in Ephesians to sort of help crystallize this idea of unity because of the gospel. In Ephesians 2.14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken us and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And later in the chapter, he says in verses 18 and 19, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So notice that Christ is the basis of his bond and love for them. 
It is for this reason and found, this is the reason for uh, the reason and foundation for his confidence in verse six. Paul was able to look back on a dozen years of partnership to point to that and say, look, only God is able to do this. With the persecution of the church on the rise and all the different things that can sort of lead people away over the years, their sustained partnership can only be attributed to Christ. Their perseverance can only be attributed to God. It is God who works in them, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. It was God uh, at work both in the past and in the present. And so Paul can be confident that he will finish the job. There are so many passages in the New Testament right, that, that testify to the perseverance of the saints because of the work of God. We think of uh, John 10. Uh, t- John 10 talks about Jesus working eternal life in believers. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And so Paul, knowing the certainty of the salvation worked in his own life, And knowing the union that he has with others through Christ is able to say confidently that you who have that same faith will be brought to completion. And so let's revisit this idea of a family road trip. Hopefully it'll be helpful, right? Paul sees the Philippian church as his family. They're his brothers and sisters in Christ. They're in this car together on the road trip of life. And in so many ways, they are waiting for that destination which is the day of Jesus Christ. And when they get there, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. They're going to see God face to face. Every tear will be wiped away. And what is true of them in the inner man will be true of them in the outer man as well. They will literally wear Christ's righteousness in their resurrection bodies. Everything will be made new. The new heavens and the new earth will be a glorious place to be. We will have a fellowship with Christ and God that we could not even imagine right now. I mean, talk about the best place to go for a road trip, right? But they're not there yet. They're not there yet. They're on the road, and as all of you know, being on the road is the worst place to be, right? It's, it's less than ideal. They look around and they see that things are just not the way that they should be, that the cracks are beginning to show in a community populated by sinners, and they rightfully begin to wonder, are we, even, are we ever going to make it? And so what does Paul do? He points them to the driver, right? It's God who is driving. He's reminding them that they are in the same car with him because they are family. And he calls them to trust the one that they all trust in, namely Christ, to finish what he started. He calls upon them not only to look at God's track record over the years they worked with Paul, but also at who God is. He's the author and perfecter of their salvation and our salvation. He's the faithful one. Just as I trusted my parents implicitly to get me to Disney World, we should trust that God will get us to glory. And so what does this mean for us? It means that God is the one who is in charge, of course. It means that for us, we can be confident that the Lord will bring to completion the good work that he has started in us, parents, 
as you see the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of your kids, you can be confident that the Lord will not fail to draw them to himself. And that is a profound comfort. This means that for all of us that are fed up with our sinful natures and are, and are impatient for sanctification, Paul's word is, trust the one that is doing the work. For me, as I, I've said to a number of you, my pride has been a constant source of problems for me. Coming up through high school and college, it made me almost insufferably arrogant, um, especially at home with my parents. Um, after college and in, years, in my years of ministry, it's, it's made me overconfident at times that I think I can do it all on my own. In my marriage, it has made me overbearing and at times condescending. And every time it rears its ugly head, I wish that I was different. But I keep coming back to the fact that I'm, by the grace of God, less prideful than I was before. That God is continuing to sanctify my pride and he will bring to completion that work which he has started. <laughs> I was learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism and, um, and the question, what is sanctification, came up. And it starts by saying that sanctification is a, is a work of God's free grace. It's God's work. And we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, yes, but sanctification is ultimately God's work. He's the one that'll get us there. And for those of us that are struggling with sin and are on the verge of despairing that we will never see victory over this particular sin, and I'm sure there's one that's rising to the top of your head right now, right, to the, to the top of your mind right now. Paul says, be encouraged. God will bring to completion your sanctification even in this sin. Even in this sin, keep fighting the good fight. There's so much comfort in knowing that because we are fellow partakers of grace, that we are not in this alone, and that God is the one that will get us there. Although there is much comfort in the first section of the passage, Paul needs, knows that we need help along the way. It's a long trip that the Lord is taking us before we get to glory, years and years, instead of the hours that my parents took me to, to Disney. And Paul prays for one specific thing that leads to three outcomes. Okay, so we're in verses 8 through 11. One specific thing that leads to three outcomes. Dennis John, uh, it's important to know before we get in a little, uh, little deeper, Dennis Johnson, who is one of the commentators that I was reading, says that it's important to know that Paul is describing gifts that he wants for, for believers and not performance that he wants from believers. So it's, it's gifts for the believers, not performance from the believers. Paul, Paul hopes that God will give us an abounding and overflowing love that is governed by discerning wisdom. But since the request for love is paired with uh, wisdom and discernment, it's, uh, but rather, and, uh, sorry, but since the request for love is paired with wisdom and discernment, Paul is most likely not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling of affection. Um, but rather an act of love that seeks to serve because warm fuzzies really don't really, they really don't need wisdom or discernment. They're just sort of there, right? Romans 12.10 directs us, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so not surprisingly, God is the best example of this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's a love that continues to give and give and give some more. Remember how I said way back at the beginning of the sermon that the church had problems with unity? 
Well, when you place the desires of others above your own, seeking to love others well, it's really hard not to have unity. Disunity always comes, almost always comes, when people are seeking their own agendas. Okay, I was at the wedding of my best friend last weekend, and the pastor in his homily said that he had never been in a counseling session where the complaint was, oh, he serves me too much, or she cares too much about my needs. That just never comes up, right? It's really hard not to be united when you serve and care for one another. And this, but this overflowing love is blended with wisdom and discernment. This love is not a blind one, but rather a love that knows what's going on and is able to figure out what is best. It's a love that has its eyes wide open. Love is often pitted against truth, but true love loves truth. It sees clearly and communicates humbly. We don't really want a love that lies to our faces, nor do we want a love that has no discernment. Love without wisdom is really just mere good intentions and well-meant affection. And while those are good and, and necessary in some places, we want a love that actually knows what's best and actually does it. And so this love produces three outcomes described in verses 10 and 11. This love enables us to, one, approve what is excellent, two, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. That's a long one. Sorry for the note takers. And three, to bring God glory and praise. So the first one, which is approve what is excellent, the first one paints a picture of a sort of a discriminating buyer. This is often the skill of discerning between good options, which one is best. In life, our, tr our trouble areas generally don't come when we know what is right and what is wrong. But generally, um, we get ourselves into trouble when we have to choose between two or three good options. But love that Paul is praying for, given by God, makes us discerning and wise. Okay, so that's the, the first outcome. The second outcome is a little bit more straightforward. An abounding love given by Christ, will keep us from sin. It keeps us pure and blameless and filled with righteousness. This love loves what is good and holy. Uh, what is good and holy. It loves righteousness and despises sin. It t when he talks about the fruit of righteousness, Paul doesn't really have in mind the fruit of the Spirit. Um, in fact, he has in mind a fruit that is born of a righteousness that dwells within us. What Paul probably has in mind are the good works that accompany righteousness. And as we said earlier, an overflowing love is an active love. It is an active love. It cannot help but do good works. The third outcome of an abounding love is that God is glorified. Loving people that are wise, that are discerning, that are righteous, they bring God glory. They do what is best in love, and they are a credit to the work of the Holy Spirit within them. Remember, we are God's workmanship. We are his workmanship, and when we love well, we do nothing but point to the one who began the good work in us. It is by his grace and mercy that we are able to do anything good at all. And so when love abounds, the Lord is glorified. And all of this, of course, is done through Christ. Right? It always comes back to him, as it seemingly always does. He is the one that will bring to completion the good work started in us. 
He is the one to whom we are being conformed. He is the one that unites us to one another so that we might love widely and deeply. He is the one to whom we turn for help when the work is completed. He is the one who will lavish his love upon us, overflowing our cups. He is the one that gives us his spirit, that gives us wisdom and discernment. And he is the one who redeems us and sanctifies us. And it's all for his glory. Should we not have confidence in one such as this? Should we not trust that he will bring us into eternal life in the kingdom? Let us fix our eyes upon Christ, who is not only the one driving us all to this family road trip, but he is also our destination. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed worthy of all praise and glory. You are literally everything to us. You are not only our destination, but also the one who is right there every second of our trip. And you are the one who brings completion, the completion, brings to completion the good work started in us. And we pray that you would hasten the day when our faith will turn to sight, that day when we will stand before you wholly sanctified, and until that day, would you make our love for you abound more and more, conforming us more to your likeness and spurring us on to love and good works for others so that we may uh, be united to them in you.